On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Once again, a pretty varied uh, panel of stories on the front pages of the Sunday papers. Um, let's start with the Sunday Times. A uh, sidebar story there uh, is about a whole generation of parents in Ukraine who say that uh, their children have been effectively abducted by the Russian state, that they've been cajoled into taking part in um, various school camps, uh, which end up then resulting in their children not coming home at the end of them. Uh, the main story there, however, is about the Kinahan cartel uh, and another aspect of how they may have been uh, laundering the proceeds of crime, uh, which apparently now is through the entertainment industry, that there is a high-profile financier based in Dubai John Mooney tells us this morning, who is suspected of laundering part of the Kinahan cartel's one billion euro fortune through the film industries in Britain and America. An international police investigation into the gang's financial structure has uncovered a network of professionals in Dubai, London, Hong Kong and Bangkok who are suspected of laundering the gang's vast wealth. Among them is an expatriate based in Dubai who controls a wealth management fund worth more than 100 million euro, which is used to fund the development of entertainment industry projects. The security services believe that the Kinahan cartel is the real beneficial owner of the fund. The suspect financier has previously worked in technology. Um, interesting quotes from a security source who says that the Kinahans panicked and made mistakes last year. They were forced to transfer money to people they didn't really know, which led to multiple investigation opportunities in time. They will come to learn that they made terrible mistakes, uh, is the front uh, page story of the Sunday Times. Uh, A few different stories on the front page of the Business Post. Um, The main one is that the amount of Irish goods exported that are not actually produced or physically traded from here has risen 20-fold over the last decade, and it now accounts for more than a third of all Irish goods traded abroad. These phantom exports, uh, goods which are produced and traded in other countries under contracts by Irish-registered firms, but they're recorded as exports from Ireland, even though they had nothing to do with the country, really accounted for 38% or 134 billion of all Irish exports last year. In 2012, that figure was 6 billion, equating to 5% of exports. That's quite significant. Um, Also on the front page of the Business Post, the Office of the Attorney General and the State Claims Agency have declined calls from the Bar Council to sign up to a new policy which seeks to encourage uh, entities to brief more women barristers. Uh, That with a view of gender equality, of course, International Women's Day coming up this coming Wednesday. Uh, And also on the front page of the Business Post, congestion charges, higher car parking fees, the pedestrianisation of urban centres, cheaper public transport and fuel price increases, all to be considered as part of a major new car reduction strategy. Uh, Eamon Ryan will bring a memo to Cabinet this Tuesday which will trigger a year-long process of developing a demand management strategy to allow the country to reach its emissions reductions targets. The strategy will be completed by the end of the year and will produce a suite of policies, proposed legislation and potential new taxes aiming to reduce car use over the next decade. Why do I get the feeling that people will focus on the taxes bit rather than all of the other sticks and carrots that will be entailed in that policy? Uh, We'll see in time. Uh, The front page of the mail on Sunday a fascinating story about the National Parents Council post-primary the state body that represents the parents of secondary school children is unfit for purpose according to a damning government report that has raised serious concerns over how taxpayers' money has been spent. Uh, The review's findings into the National Parents' Council post-primary, which were carried out by Governance Ireland, come after Norma Foley withdrew funding from the organisation late last year. The minister pulled the plug on funding after the NPCPP Yes, that is NPCPP, uh, whose main remit is to provide support and advice in relation to the Leaving Cert, uh, refused to engage in a review that she commissioned into the governance of the organisation, which I have to say is probably not a good look. Um, Finally for now, though, the front page of the Sunday Independent, two stories there. 
The first is that two thirds of the public believe that COVID lockdowns, including the long term closure of schools, are continuing to affect the well-being and development of children. The ongoing effects of two years of lockdowns and public health restrictions laid bare in the latest Sunday Independent Iron Thinks poll, with a fifth of respondents saying that their mental health has deteriorated. The other story on the front page of the Sunday Independent is also related to that poll, but it shows um, it's a story about um, party politics and who will who will vote for which party in the event of there being an election tomorrow. The main finding of that is that the election of the new Social Democrat leader Holly Cairns has sparked a dramatic increase in support for her party at the expense of Sinn Féin. In a sensational development, that's the the paper's words, not mine, although to be fair it is objectively pretty sensational, uh, the Social Democrats are up five points to nine percent, more than doubling their support since the election of Ms Cairns as the party leader last week. Sinn Féin is down two points to 29, having now stalled or lost support for the fourth month in succession. This is the first time in 18 months that Sinn Féin has fallen below the 30% threshold in a development which will trouble, it says, party leader Mary Lou MacDonald. Um, it's quite significant though. Now maybe there's a certain amount of short-termism but the Social Democrats up five points in a month to 9%. Uh, really genuinely headline finding uh, of that poll. Uh, to discuss those stories and more, joined in studio by Aideen Finnegan, who's the co-host of the In the News podcast from the Irish Times, and by Ellen O'Malley Dunlop, former chair of the National Women's Council of Ireland, former chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, and now currently a member of the Council of Europe Committee overseeing the implementation of the Istanbul Convention on the Rights of Women and Violence Against Women. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in this morning. Good to have you both in. Um, Ellen, let's start with yourself, first of all. Um, it's hard to know how permanent the changes from that opinion poll might be. And of course, there is always a natural you know, flow to these opinion polls, particularly in the context of a media cycle like the one we've seen for the Social Democrats in the last week. Um, but doubling your, your support to 9% in a week uh, bodes well for Holly Cairns' tenure. It certainly does. And I hope it bodes well for women in politics in general. In fact, in one of the uh, reports in the paper today, Holly Kern said herself that actually had she known about the terrible abuse that she had received in social media, that she wouldn't have gone into politics. Thanks, mm. Thankfully, she didn't know about it. But I think it's really important that that type of thing is addressed. And uh, there are ways of addressing that, of course. And mm. in one of the uh, reports in the paper, I think it was... Uh, Brenda Breed O'Brien, where she said that um, the um, you know the influencer marketing uh, is uh, is a really a big uh, it's it's developing now in in the Amoric research, and it said that. they, there are ways in of stopping this type of abuse uh, with artificial intelligence. Mm. And it's really important, I think, that the government address this because when you look at only 114 women were elected to the Dáil since 1918 yeah. mm. and uh, 23% of the Dáil, are, uh, currently 23% are women. And mm. that's only up since the 2019 election when the, the, it was only 14%. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, 20, only 22 cabinet uh, ministers were women since 1919. Yeah, so, which, which is really striking because pe- people so would think that in, in the context of all the decades people might just presume that there might have been more women in cabinet over the years but of course between Constance Markovic and Maura Gagan Quinn there was nobody. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And when you think like you know 22 cabinet ministers are women since mm. 1919 unbelievable. Yeah. Um, on the opinion poll itself uh, Aidy Finnegan good morning to you. Um, it, it is it's, it's one thing that's remarkable about these Sunday Independent polls I should say is that they're taken in very short windows. So the the entire sampling of this poll was all done on Friday of last week. So it's two days after the election of Holly Cairns. It's two days ago from now. Um, so it very much captures the, the post-appointment um, friendly media cycle, you might say, that Holly Cairns has benefited from in the last couple of days. But still, 
up five points to nine percent. Really quite something. We can say caveat, caveat, caveat yeah. all we want, health but it, it health warning, etc. It is very interesting that she's now ahead of Mary Lou Macdonald in terms of popularity as a mm. leader. And I think you know, I suppose perhaps this is just a, a friend of mine messaged me and said, "How are people so surprised with this? Have they where have they been that she has been on this this rise mm. and riding this crest?" When you say this? surprised by this, do you mean surprised by the opinion poll finding or by her her appointments or which bit? By the Holly mania, I think, and I suppose. In general, it might be our own little bit of Jacinda Ardern or Sanna Marin, the Prime Minister of Finland. Mm. There, she just doesn't look like a politician. She doesn't really sound like a traditional politician, and she's untainted by. We we'll say, uh, I think Jody Corcoran is writing in the Sunday Independent today about how over forty fives just don't really vote Sinn Féin sorry they do obviously mm. but like for, for those who, who won't vote Sinn Féin it's because they have this association with um, the IRA yeah. and the North and she is untainted by all of that she's untainted by the, the, the financial crash of 2008 and I think this is just an excellent exercise in rebranding like like any corporation that kind of has a new face it's just very exciting for people and I think that that bounce is reflected in the poll on Friday and of course we will have to wait to find out if it is more permanent or a passing fad mm. but I think the thing about the Social Democrats is they have tapped into uh, my colleague um, Harry McGee in the Irish Times said that if you go to a convention a party convention mm. you tend to seem older whiter haired males at yeah. these things mm. and when you go that to a true. social democrat yeah. convention you are struck by how young the, mm. the, the 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 people there are and so i think she has they, they've got this um section that other political parties haven't been able to tap into and of course she did stand up in the doll and say Taoiseach I'm you know one of the first I'm not sure if I'm going to get this quote exactly yes, right yeah, but yeah. you know I'm I'm the first p- person whose generation will be more will be worse off than their parents and lots of people in their 20s and 30s and possibly early 40s as well if they missed out mm. on housing the first time round in the in the noughties will be like yeah I, you know where is my my security my future and so she has really tapped into that and mm. obviously the Sock Dems are more transfer friendly as well so we have um, Kevin Cunningham from Ireland Thinks writing yeah, in the Yeah who, who conducts the polls yeah. Yeah saying that you know they, they are very second preference friendly. Okay. Uh, and so I just you know I think there's a lot of reasons the Sock mm. Dems can be hopeful. Ellen? I think there's a there's another element she's there's something about she's talking about uh, urban Ireland as well uh, or rural Ireland I think mm. in yes, Martin. Yeah. And that I think is a big plus because it sometimes we hear that rural Ireland is it misses out and uh, having a fresh voice like her uh, talking about uh, rural Ireland yeah, she's and not representing the Dublin elite. Ex- yes. Exactly. Mm. Maybe the West so, Cork elite. But. <laughs> yeah. well, somebody, I was at, a, at an event uh, in the last couple of days and somebody said that you know Cork is, is a region apart from, from the rest of Ireland but West Cork is a region apart from the rest of Cork so <laughs> it's kind of a subculture upon a subculture. Um, one thing that which, which does kind of strike me though and and again, we can put all the health warnings we like about it being a new leader bounce. But that when you consider, and I know the supporters of the two parties are going to be rolling their eyes now at me immediately drawing this comparison. But when you consider the impact that the appointment of Ivana Bacic as the Labour Party leader had on their polls, i.e. basically no impact at all. And then you see the impact that the Social Democrats changing leader has had on their poll standing. It does, it might give Labour members calls to wonder why exactly it is that they're not hoovering up the same votes, Ellen. I think that the Labour 
sock Dems are absolutely cannibalizing that part of like Labour had should have had this rebrand years ago, years ago because it seemed like they were not um, necessarily a trade union party, even though, of course, they would insist they were. But, you know, they were they were headed up by people who were left leaning, university educated, liberal, you know, that, that and that is what the, the Social Democrats are you know they mm. are representing that 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 younger base that have been locked out of housing who have you know uh, maybe a strong sense of social justice and they just haven't had a natural home in the other mm. in the other areas and labor just haven't been able to rebrand in the same way is there also a sense perhaps uh, Ellen O'Malley Dunlop that the social democrats um get bounces like this because they haven't yet had the opportunity to be in government and therefore haven't had the opportunity to let people down the way that every other party that's been in power has done up till now well you know people do want to to have, they want to something optimistic and there's something really optimistic about her. And people are tired. Uh, I think they're tired mm. of, of the old parties. And uh, th- there's something very refreshing about her mm. uh, and about the Sock Dems. Would it make for a very interesting... Now, look, Sorry, this, can I just add one other yeah, thing ahead, in yeah. terms of the young... Po- I think it's important also to have the white and the grey haired as well. <laughs> but, okay. and I sport my grey hair here. They, they this are morning. they are voters too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm making my own efforts to try and join you on that front. Uh, involuntary. Um, is there a certain amount, though, Ellen, of um, and I'm wary of using these words as well because sometimes I think that they're sort of weaponized or sort of used prejudicially, but kind of identity politics that um, people of a generation like myself and Aideen um, may be more likely to sort of to look at Holly Cairns and go well she's kind of walked in our footsteps she's talked about being an emigrant because she wasn't able to, to find work after the crash and she had to go and, and live or work abroad for a bit and then came home to, to take over a family business that you know she, she's from the generation that will struggle to pull together the deposit while you're paying the rent as well that there's just a sense of she's walked in our shoes and how potent is that I think as a political tool I think that's really important and, and very potent and uh, you need people in leadership roles that you can identify with. And I think that's uh, what you're talking about. People who have walked the walk, have, uh, you know, have the experience of not being able to afford a mm. house, have had to go away. And uh, that's 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 refreshing. Yeah. yeah, I think Jodie Corcoran was also writing about how 17% of those who live rent free with their parents slash friends and 12% of those who live privately now support the Social Democrats. Mm. And... You know, this is, I mean, we can see from census results, like what we can see from our population statistics, how many people are going to need housing. That group is only going to swell and swell and swell Mm. over the next few years. I think also the fact that the Social Democrats had two women leading it for such, you know, from from the, well, I know uh, Stephen Donnelly was there at mm. the onset and uh, however the mm. two women But they've been two it, women for six years. They yeah. held it together and uh, they they were able to, to lead together which is qu- unique and now uh, they were able to step aside and let another younger woman come in. I think that is fantastic mm. and it's important that you know we that the older people can step aside and let younger people take the helm. And let's not forget, she's a very, uh, you know, she's great at media performances and she has had some zingers there in the week gone when, it, you know, Labour said, oh, we'd rather, you know. Yes, a party. Uh, party founded by Connolly than Donnelly. Yes. yes. And, yeah. and she fired back, uh, you know, I'd rather be a, a party that has abandoned Stephen Donnelly than a party that abandoned the principles of James Connolly. And then, you know, she was, I think she was challenged as well about, um, you know, <coughs> how she 
would handle it as a you know being youthful and mm. maybe having a lack of experience and she was saying well let's not forget that some of the most experienced politicians in the Dáil bankrupted the country a little over a decade ago so that yeah. none of that is going to hurt <laughs> Well it's not no and I, I do think the likes of Ivana Bacic who um, you know has been around politics for 20 years and working really hard at uh, women's issues I think you know it's not it's not fair either to kind of totally sideline no. somebody like her no. for example because uh, you know I do think that you know time will tell uh, just to move on for a couple of minutes from from Holly Mania um, and, and let's maybe try and draw a line under Holly Mania because th- there is a case to be made that the, the media cycle has been overtly beneficial to her for the last couple of days um, she has written a piece uh, more fundamentally on page 26 of the Mail on Sunday and, and it's under the fairly plain headline uh, Aideen the energy companies are simply running rings around this bystander government perhaps making clear that maybe her, her political appeal is not just to, to younger people who feel precarious in, in economy but also to, to people who are trying to make households get, get by as well Yeah so she was really you know focusing on the fact that pensioners with fixed incomes like how could they possibly um, pay these bills that are coming through the door and that you know one 77 year old spoke of um, his shock after he got an electricity bill for seven 1700. Mm. And uh, on Friday, a 90 year old man, Michael Darcy, wrote to a national newspaper to express his anger after he received a gas bill for over 1600. And how, you know, so she's she's obviously not, you know, she's spreading her cape wide. But again, this might be the area where she and the Social Democrats have difficulty setting themselves apart because, of course, the whole opposition yeah is yeah, saying f- the f- same thing. Find me thing. anyone who doesn't say the <laughs> yeah, bill should exactly, come down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what I like about her in this particular article, though, is she does offer a, a solution. She says, uh, you know, a targeted energy price cap of 80% energy needs to be a reduced price, you know, then Like after. they're doing in Germany. Mm. Like they're doing in Germany. And while government has agreed this, there hasn't been any action on it. And I mean, this is what we lack so, so often is action. Yeah. And, and this type of, of suggestion and agreement now needs to be actioned. Yeah, well, this is where I got where I come from with the whole thing of branding because, you know, lots of opposition parties will be putting forward mm. solutions and it's like, who gets to own the energy crisis? Yeah. We'll, you know, that's all to play for. Uh, the funny thing is, w- without sounding too, too generous again to the Social Democrats, I remember when they were launched and I remember like, okay, so what is what is it that you think you'll do differently to every other um, opposition party at the time? Because it was, again, a crowded market in 2015 when they did spring up. And I remember the what they basically labelled themselves as, well, we want to bring down the cost of living. And wasn't that a message that was seven or eight years before its time, but that was basically their whole attitude. They were like, Ireland is too expensive and we want to make the cost of living come down for everybody. And and how salient that all was. Um, Holly Cairn's piece about the uh, the prospect of a wholesale energy price cap. Um, she says, this means costs are reduced for everyone, but those wealthier individuals who own larger homes are not disproportionately advantaged. It also means that our climate action targets would not be endangered because there's still an incentive to conserve energy. Sounds like a win-win all round, really, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we will be talking more about the uh, the role of women in public life as well. We're having a panel after 12 o'clock to discuss an event in Leinster House tomorrow uh, in which Leinster House will be entirely, for a little while anyway, uh, populated by women and what it might take uh, to have Leinster House with its fair permanent representation uh, of women on the seats of the Dáil Chamber. That is after 12 o'clock. But stay with us, though. More from the papers from Aideen and Ellen. But we're back after this. Uh, we talked a little bit in the first part about the um, opinion poll and the political aspect of it, the party political aspect of it. Um, there's one other pretty significant finding which is also covered on the front page of the Sunday Independent which is that two-thirds of the public believe that COVID lockdowns, including the long-term closure of schools, are continuing to affect the well-being and development of children. 
Uh, about a fifth of respondents say that their mental health has deteriorated. Almost the same number say that their lives have yet to return to normal. And more than one in ten say that their life has changed for the worse. Uh, the profound consequences for children are outlined in the Stark finding that 50, 64%, excuse me, 64% of people believe that the restrictions, which included long periods of school closure, continue to have an impact on the educational, emotional well-being and development of children. Uh, Despite all of that, 70% say Ireland did a good job overall and nearly half the public, however, believe that an immediate inquiry into the state's handling should be launched as a third anniversary approach. Ellen, your thoughts on that? I think it's really important that we do have um, a a review of how we dealt with uh, Mm. what happened during the COVID lockdown. For my own grandchildren, um, I suppose, you know, when I was reading these reports, you're just reminded of how terrible uh, they were, how you couldn't see, couldn't touch your 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 grandchildren mm. you know it was awful now Luke O'Neill said uh, in his report he said we did very well overall with the vaccination campaign and managed to keep the death toll low yes um, uh, but I do think an inquiry is really important so that we can learn from the things that mm. um, y- you know that we didn't do right and and should we have kept our schools open I mean that's a, a really big question yeah. there, there is um, uh, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but th- there is already some concern that any COVID inquiry would find itself very quickly getting into the whole sphere of um, personalising the decision making. And, and that's kind of understandable because we were living in an era where everyone in the country knew who Tony Hulham was, everyone knew who uh, Philip Nolan was, everyone who knew who Ronan Glim was. In fact, in, at a point, they almost seemed that they were bigger or more influential figures than the respective Taoiseach and health ministers. So do you think that it would be right or proper or warranted for any inquiry to start making judgments about their individual actions or should it be more abstract? I think it's more representative as because what Tony Hulhan was representing was Neffet, but the type of power that was given to Neffet, I think, needs to be uh, scrutinised and needs to be looked at and mm-hmm. analysed. I think yeah, that's really important. I, I think you have to put yourself back in March 2020. I actually had a, a you know a very young infant at the mm. time and my sister gave birth around that time so we had newborn children and we were really afraid because at the time we didn't know how it affected children and even if it didn't kill them did the virus would it cause brain damage you know the way um, German measles can or mm. so we we were afraid and I guess we we want to be led by scientists not necessarily <laughs> politicians who would make political decisions and then we got into that very murky territory and I suppose yeah like we will probably with an inquiry end up rehashing an awful lot of that stuff mm. and I see Hugh O'Connell writing in the uh, Sunday Independent today yeah about how he and, you know, he wrote the book Pandemonium with uh, my with Irish Times colleague, Jack Horgan Jones. Mm. And, you know, they, they all already have identified several issues about the forthcoming inquiry. So, you know, the role of NFET. Sorry, I'm going to say NFET. It's okay. the hill I will uh, die that's, on. That's, that's the civil war the park of our it, times. Okay. Yeah. okay. So <laughs> right. that, um, that Tony Houlihan decided who was on it and who wasn't. And I suppose maybe those are the kind of things that we need to look at now. Um, those are the things that, that might be useful to know rather than apportioning individual blame because... We, I, I still believe that people did the best with the information that they had at the time and that hindsight 
becomes 2020. Yes, we know that there have been impacts on children. We know that the problem was that were we were we in a country that was set up to deal with it? I mean, we were, uh, Luke O'Neill is writing again today about all the unknowns. And what we do know is that we were a vaccinated population and we did vaccination very well. And that really saved our bacon. Um, I know a lot of people compare the lockdowns in Ireland to the fact that there weren't any in Sweden. And Luke O'Neill is also writing today. Mm. And I was really I was really glad to see it, actually, because I have family who live in Sweden and it's just a completely different setup there. They don't mix there. They don't mix socially the way we do. In fact, there's there were memes going around at the time going, oh, that's great that the two metre social distancing mm. has been abolished. We can go back to being five metres from each other like we were before, <laughs> you know, and that they single single households yeah. make up the majority in, in Sweden. So, so in effect, and, and people will have their own thoughts on this, but so in effect, what the public health restrictions or advice that was implemented for the rest of the world is basically how Sweden kind of lived anyway, so they didn't it, need to formalise it. Yeah, exactly. And of course, they had a health system like we we, yeah. we we reacted very well to a crisis where we had set up, you know, beds in City West and all the rest of it. But obviously that was at the expense of other parts of the health service. And we are seeing that now with, you know, delayed diagnoses and really long um, outpatient waiting lists because of that. So our health system was not in a good place to deal with with that crisis. And perhaps we 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 kept numbers as low as we could have. I mean, they were a quarter below what Sweden were mm. in terms of fatalities. Yes, we had very high deaths in care homes and we have to look at that. Mm. Uh, look, it's, I suppose it's just, we, we do need an inquiry. We need to look at it and we need to kind of like definitely not fall into the trap of getting into that culture war again or yeah. apportioning blame. The, there's Person, personality yeah. blame. Yeah. yeah. I, and this is where I think it's really important that we look at where the power was. And as you say, this, we wanted the scientists to uh, be telling us how mm. to respond rather than our politicians. And it was a very, very fine line well, uh, at I think that time. It, it, they'd sometimes forgotten that, and people sort of wonder how Neffet became the, the big beast that it did. But to my mind, people have never really dwelt on the fact that when COVID arrived on our shores we were still under the care of a caretaker government. Uh, it was the outgoing um, Fine Gael independence minority government that we didn't have the coalition that we have now that took until June to put together. So there was actually a genuine sense that ministers didn't really have the authority to start making huge decisions about how we were going to live our lives until such point as it became an absolute necessity for, from the health profile. But I mean I remember there being even before some prospective um, restrictions being put in place or even decisions like the PUP that the outgoing government and Leo Varadkar and Simon Harris were convening meetings, roundtable meetings with every party in Leinster House to see, listen, are, are we politically safe to do this? Because we recognise that we don't really have the the real moral authority to start making huge decisions. So they were very much consensus driven, but it, it did allow, to some degree, Neffet and Tony Houlihan and well, the fact that he was doing live televised daily press conferences um, certainly probably helped as well. But it did create Neffet as this big this big beast and how the country was being run that it maybe felt very difficult to rein that back in again when there was a government that was there with authority. Um, one thing that does strike me though, Ellen, in, in the six questions that, that Hugh O'Connell has outlined today in his, his piece. So he has the role of Neffet and, sorry, Aideen, <laughs> Neffet. The role of Neffet, uh, the decisions around Meaningful Christmas, uh, which obviously are the decisions around late 2020, political oversight and decision making, the role of the health minister, what happened in nursing homes and could lockdowns have been avoided? They seem to me to fall into two categories. There's one about was the right decision made 
And then secondly, about that whole theme of, well, who was making the decisions and how did we come with the structures that we ended up having? Yeah, I mean, we were in unprecedented times. It was totally uncharted waters, all of this. And uh, I really believe that people did the best that they could do, given what was happening at the time. Um, and But it is important that we do review it and we do, but not, I think, a portion too much blame to individuals. I, I really think we can't do that. Uh, and I, I don't think that we would be learning anything in terms of what's going to happen down the line because we are looking at possibly another uh, pandemic, you know, in the not too distant future. And uh, we need to be prepared for mm. that. Um, a couple of texts coming in about this, uh, which is unsurprising. Um, James says that we knew kids didn't die. That's well, it's a, it's a Sorry, way. it's a broader I, I, summary. I, I, it's not not universally true. We knew kids. I presume what James means is that we knew kids broadly did not become profoundly sick as a result of COVID. We knew that old people did, and we got it backwards. Neffet only looked at health, not economy or welfare or children, says James, which is true. Uh, that that was Neffet's purview, but of course Neffet is a public health emergency team. Its point was not to look at the other economic or social consequences. That was the point of a government ultimately making the final decisions. Jim uh, texts to say, I find all this retrospective criticism of the way that COVID was dealt with a little bit futile. Uh, do people think that there was going to be a perfect response to a completely unprecedented situation? I think the people in charge reacted and did what they thought was best at the time. I'd say it's more important to learn from what happened, including mistakes made for future events, rather than looking for scapegoats, says Jim. Uh, which is very level-headed and rational by Jim. I just, I don't know whether other people will have the same um, ambiguity or the same uh, degree of ambivalence about holding individuals uh, to account. Um, somebody on Twitter called Noble Guardian, who I think works in the health service and who is a regular uh, contributor on our, our tweet line, says, I wonder are people just associating the normal trials and tribulations of children with the fact that COVID restrictions were coincidental? Uh, clearly, some children will be adversely affected, but a minority? Question mark. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty well... Um illustrated and stated that children with maybe additional needs were set back. Children who are neurodivergent really suffered. And I think in general, and I know that Jen Hogan, my colleague in the Irish Times, has written an awful lot about this, about how children just didn't have the voice. <laughs> you know, they, they, they weren't lobbied for in the same way because they were, the, the, the line trotted out was kids are resilient. Kids are little people. And just like grown up people it's very individual it can it can really work for certain people who are well supported you know it, we were all in the same storm but different boats you know well yeah and I think with, with children with disabilities and the families the parents with children with disabilities I'm on a board of a special school and just that was so harrowing for the families you know having uh, no respite at all uh, so and watching know, regression like exactly, children with autism so and the it, progress that they had yeah. made being set back. Absolutely. Very yeah, very, very, very difficult. Uh, yeah. What we'll read out the tweet from Sharon, uh, but suffice to say, Sharon, feel free to turn off the radio if this isn't for you. <laughs> Honestly, genuinely, there, there's no need for either of us to be wasting our time trying to convince each other when you've clearly made up your mind that this was supposed to be completely harmless to vast majorities of the population. So, Sharon, do both of us a favour and just plug out your radio for the next hour and a half, for the love of Jesus. Um, one texter, uh, well done, Aideen. It is Neffet, oh, not Neffet, so, sorry. Thank okay. you. This is, this you, is when you're reading it off a screen and you don't know what they mean. Well done, Aideen. It is Enfet and not Nefet and never has been, <laughs> Thank God. says a texter. 
Uh, Grace texts in to say my generation of over 70s lost out so much so many of my friends health deteriorated it was an awful time which I suppose is a reminder that we spend so much time in this discussion at least thinking about the impact on children when of course there was an impact on on people of older generations as well Uh, Julian Cork gets in touch to 53106 Um, good morning to Julie Um, I was listening to an interview with Professor Martin Cormican yesterday Martin Cormican was the HSE's head for um, infectious diseases he wasn't a member of NEFET NFET uh, notably um, for the first few months of its existence he said that Neffet were not in favour of the school closures. Um, I would like the inquiry to look at why schools were closed for so long and children's outdoor activities, even worse, all activities. Um, also, in other countries, provision was made for healthcare workers who could not homeschool their children and this was never considered here. Uh, who was making these decisions at the detriment of families and children, says Julian Cork. There was some discussion about trying to reopen um, schools or at least some childcare facilities for the children of healthcare workers. But I remember basically they found it very difficult to make it happen in practice because the you would be talking about reopening creches and childcare facilities for relatively small populations mm. and they were going to find it very difficult to try and uh, make that work from a, a financial perspective. Uh, final text for now and then I'll go to a break. We've got plenty more to discuss after the break. So final text for now uh, from Mick who says, Hi Gavin. People need not lose sight of the fact that the government were all at home hiding under the bed for the first few months of the pandemic. The only leader who was stood up and willing to speak, not fearing being wrong, was Tony Houlihan. His voice was legendary and he cannot be thanked enough for stepping into the void, is the thoughts of Mick to 53106. Uh, do keep your texts and tweets coming. On the record NT is our hashtag. By the way, we've got an email address now. Uh, four years in, finally got an email address. Uh, on the record at newstalk.com uh, if you want to send long form thoughts uh, through those means. Uh, much more to come with Aideen and Ellen. We'll be back after this. Uh, still joined in studio by Aideen Finnegan and Ellen O'Malley Dunlop to discuss some of the stories in the news. But we're going to take a little break from that uh, just for a second because we wanted to talk about one of the other stories of the week, which does get a little bit of coverage, I think, in some of today's papers, which were the changes announced this week um, to the Leaving Cert, or rather the changes which I suppose were unannounced to the Leaving Cert, given that there were some changes on how kids were going to be assessed, uh, which are now not going ahead. Uh, let's talk to Jack McGinn, who is the Education Officer at the Irish Second Level Students Union, ISSU. Um, Jack, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, just start with it a general question what do you make of the the fairly abrupt decision this week not to go ahead with those plans to move some of the exams to the end of fifth year so the ISSU actually advocated that there would be a delay in the plan changes this was due to a number of factors so firstly there hasn't been enough time to engage with educational stakeholders on this plan this is a major change to the senior cycle curriculum and the way the senior cycle that everyone knows it's such a comfortable um, system that we've been with a major factor of this is that there, it's, there's no curriculum change. It's just changing of the exam systems. So there's actually no senior cycle reform here. Um, on this as well, there's a lack of clarity um, on logistics and a lack of clarity to students. There's TY students and third year students who would be starting this new system in um, September and there was still no announcement to them. There's been an impact on TY already. There's been many schools who had actually begun teaching the fifth year curriculum in TY this year and that takes away from TY and what TY is meant to be. So I'm sorry, so there, sorry to interrupt you Jack, so there have been some schools that were already so worried about the prospect of the end of year exams coming up the summer after next that they'd started interrupting transition year to get pupils ready for the fifth year exam. Yeah, that's correct. We've heard that on a large scale from our members and as well, like I don't think you can blame schools on this. This is a complete change into a leaving certificate that schools, students and parents and teachers are very familiar with the last number of decades. So schools with very little information are trying to ensure that their students were well prepared. And that means that transition year had taken a hit this year 
but many schools are starting to fit their curriculum in TY. Um, what do you make, um, both from the issue perspective, but also as a male student yourself, of the perception that moving the ex- those papers to the end of fifth year might have been a disadvantage for male students because broadly speaking they're they're seen as having matured a little bit later and that particularly if you weren't doing transition year you could end up doing these exams at the age of 16 and that was seen as being detrimental to, to male pupils versus women. Yeah, so I'm no um, professor on this but if that's um, what the um, opinions were coming from leading statutory bodies in the education circles it does raise a lot of questions and about the age of students sitting a leaving certificate exam at 16 you wonder, will there be a disadvantage and would they be disadvantaged compared to previous years gone by? And I think on that as well, another really important point is some students that possibly skip QI would be sitting three major state exams in three consecutive years. And does that actually reduce the stress on students who don't choose QI or don't have the opportunity to do QI? Well, the flip side argument to that is that you could reform the Leaving Cert uh, curriculum and the whole cycle and the assessment as well to have slightly more continual assessment. And this is the general uh, trend of education across all sectors and maybe across the world as well. What would you make of the idea of a proper, full, substantial reform of the senior cycle so that there were more exams at more regular intervals and take the pressure off the big one at the end? So I think the big issue with senior cycle is it's such a complex issue compared to maybe the junior cycle reform that had come through. In senior cycle reform, you have to firstly fill the gap that's between the new junior cycle and the leaving certificate. In that as well, you have to look at TY that falls under senior cycle. There would have to be an aspect of reviewing TY and deciding that. You then have to look at um, leaving certificate applied that often is forgotten about. Then you might look at the actual leaving certificate established or what we'd commonly refer to as the leaving cert. Mm. On that as well, you have to look at CAO reform. So there's a lot of complex issues there. And to be honest, no st- I don't think any stakeholder has sole answer to that. But the key issue is we need to engage all educational stakeholders from the get-go on these reforms and we need to go through proper channels such as the NCCA Council who are tasked with reforming curriculum and looking at curriculum. Broadly, that's the only way to do it really Broadly speaking then what, what's your, your overall reaction to what's happened in the last week because you could argue that obviously it was a little bit uh, rushed and that it, it is welcome to stand down the extra rushed pressure but at the same time as you've said it, it's already caused irreversible disruption for a lot of people who weren't going to be doing the exam now in 15 months time so it could be arguably a lost cause for them Yes and that's true Gavin but um, the ISSU in engagements with the department are clear and um, line of advocacy was that we wanted a delay to the proposed plans of at least a year so that we would have the opportunity to properly um, engage statutory bodies and educational stakeholders and review it. And while there may have been some damage done, at least at the moment that students and, and teachers and school management can are assured that they won't be sitting um, exams at the end of fifth year next year. I think that's an insurance and that clarity has been delivered to um, students, teachers and school managers. So that's really important. Uh, finally, is there a future for the idea of doing some exams at the end of fifth year if it was part of some sort of broader reform of the cycle itself rather than just a change to assessment? I think the big issue is, as you said, it needs to be following curriculum change and curriculum reform. Then, as the ISC was really open to um, continuous assessment, but it needs to be delivered after curriculum reform, and that's the really important aspect to it. So I think there's many options with leading certificate reform. And they can be um, reviewed with the educational stakeholders at the um, appropriate um, tables, but it needs to follow curriculum change first. 
Uh, all right, we'll leave it there. Jack McGinn, Education Officer of the Irish Second Level Students Union. Thank you for joining us this morning uh, on On The Record. 53106 for your text on the record NT uh, is our hashtag on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to warn people, by the way, I'm going to read out a text, but I'm going to give people a little bit of a heads up that the item we're going to be discussing in about 20 seconds uh, is one that includes some adult or mature themes. So if there's little ears around, maybe best to, to change station for a couple of minutes or, uh, or put on Coco Melon on Spotify or what, whatever it is that you do. I know that's certainly my tactic when I need to change the tone when I'm uh, looking around little people. Uh, one text from Mac and Calvin before I get to that. Uh, we closed down construction for a year or more uh, as a result of COVID and industry people large uh, peopled largely by young healthy men working outdoors. There was almost hysteria in the press about builders crossing the border to work in Dublin. Now we wonder why housing output is lagging behind expectations. That is a text from Mac in Calvin. Um, one of many, many things uh, to look into. Uh, by the way, people are, someone on, on Twitter, someone else who isn't Sharon, who is still listening, just don't bother, Sharon. Um, Darren has been in touch, basically wants me to correct the record because he says the COVID infection posed little risk to healthy young people. Uh, I, I don't dispute that. The point was just that the text that was sent in just said the words kids didn't die. And that's that's the thing that I was trying to correct. Um, the slightly more mature topic that we want to discuss is on page 18 of the Sunday Times. Um, a large piece written by Paris Hilton who people will know is, is uh, has become famous in the meantime for myriad reasons, but whose uh, first rise to public prominence was as the result of a sex tape. Uh, and I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs of her piece, which is a whole story about the impact that, that the tape had on her life. Um, something that was just taped, by the way, when she was 18 years old. Uh, I'll read the first few paragraphs. One night in 1999, my little sister Nikki and I were in a club doing karaoke and we noticed a guy staring at us. The guy was older than me, coarse, arrogant, the overconfident bad boy from Central Casting, the perfect guy for a girl going through the most self-destructed moment of her life. His nickname, which he loved, was Scum. I thought that was so badass. We started dating, and I have to give credit where credit is due. It was all very thrilling and naughty, a whole new brand of adrenaline. I was 18 and obsessed. I don't remember that much about the night that he wanted to make a videotape while we made love. He had often said it was something he did with other women, but I felt weird and uncomfortable about it. I always told him, I can't, it's too embarrassing. He kept pushing. I kept making excuses. I was tipsy and tired from a long night of partying. The lighting wasn't good. My hair and makeup were beyond. He told me I always looked gorgeous no matter what and that it shouldn't matter anyway because this wasn't a performance. It was just for us. No one else would see it. Uh, and you can imagine basically where the rest of it goes and then she talks about the impact that it had in her life and you know some of the um, different things that it led her to doing but not all of which were a life that she would have chosen for herself. Uh, an extract from her memoir uh, which is out in a couple of weeks time. Um, 18 it's people sometimes presume that these things are done for very opportunistic reasons uh, and that there is ultimately upside to people's lives yes. and this, this kind of proves that it's not really the case yeah the big line uh, still to this day is that she leaked it deliberately to boost her profile and uh, she actually at the end of this extract because you know parts of the book have been serialised in the Sunday Times she says please hear me when I say I would never ever be involved in the production of an amateur teen porn video and if I had I'd been involved in this one the lighting would have been better I would have had proper hair makeup and wardrobe the camera angles and editing would have been more flattering and I wouldn't have packaged it like a sleazy low budget piece of garbage if it was something I'd chosen to do I would have owned it I would have stood up tall in my Louboutins and said yeah that was my choice and I think you know this so I suppose it really does debunk the whole thing that she did it deliberately she was saying that people were you know that saying that they weren't calling her an icon for doing it. They were calling her, you know, the W word and mm. all sorts of really pejorative stuff. And really, the fact this this was recorded in 1999 when she was 18 and the sex tape leaked in 2004. Mm. And we are so much more literate now about consent than uh, and, and bullying women online as well. Mm. 
in 2023, you forget that at this time, it, this was kind of like coming off Monica Lewinsky kind of treatment. You know, you, yeah. it was it was a measure of your decency and your respectability, and that was the currency. And uh, that social media, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a thing in 1999. It wasn't even really a thing in 2004. And so it's not like she would have been expecting this to go viral, as we now know. Mm. Like we're, we're looking at it with that past lens, but. It, Big time. It it, it it kind of reminds me of the treatment of Britney Spears and Amy Winehouse. There was this treatment of women in the media at the time that wouldn't be tolerated now. Um, Eleanor Riley Dunlop, given your, your previous life as the chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, I'd imagine that this raises some themes that are pretty close to your heart. Absolutely. And I think also uh, the fact that Ireland have ratified the uh, European Convention on the Prevention uh, and the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Uh, I think it's really important. But what stands out so much for me in this particular article is education and how important it is for us to actually begin sex education at a very from a very early age, you know, to the to the point where we become conscious that uh, things like saying to our uh, little uh, Johnny or um, our Annie, uh, mm. you know, kiss your uncle or kiss your auntie. And no, I don't want to. Oh, go on, kiss them. Those kinds of things are so important that children are given choice and uh, consent is, that's where we begin to learn about mm. consent and how important it is. And I can just, one other thing sure, I yeah, would say, since Ireland has ratified the European Convention, the European Union hadn't ratified it. Oh, really? <clears throat> until, uh, it, but it is going to ratify it and, and it's been led by Francis Fitzgerald, our own MEP is the rapporteur and uh, there's been a, a, a shift in Europe and they will now ratify the European Convention which of course is the gold standard in yeah. terms of ensuring that we do work towards and I say work towards because we have a long way to go mm. the elimination of violence against women. Just very briefly to wrap up you're on the Council of Europe uh, independent expert body which is responsible for monitoring compliance with the, the Istanbul Convention about um, violence against women. Um, would it be your hope and, and I'm conscious this this could be an, an upbeat note in which to, to wrap up the whole segment or it could be a pretty downbeat conclusion. Do you think the world has moved on from the time of the Paris Hilton tape or do you think that if the same thing were to happen now that we would be a little bit more mature about what it is we're looking at or would the world react in the same way now? I'd say we're a little bit more mature but a little bit more. We have quite a way to go. Eleanor Manley is a member of the Council of Europe Committee. She's also a former Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and a former Chair of the National Women's Council. Um, and Aideen Finnegan is a co-host of the In The News podcast with the Irish Times. Thank you both uh, very much for coming in to have a look at the papers today. On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.